You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Today is March 30th, one day before the end of the quarter. It's been a wild quarter, Doug. The last couple of weeks have been really interesting. Last few weeks really have been really interesting uh, with the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, followed by Signature Bank, the Credit Suisse collapse, et cetera. Um, But all in all, if you look at the actual return in the U.S. markets of the last quarter, the markets are trending upwards. And if the the market holds up, it's been a a good couple of days, the market should end up about 5%. Um, Give me your thoughts in terms of like the sort of 30,000 foot view of what's going on. And that fact that even through all this craziness, it looks like the markets are going to end positive if things hold up the next today and tomorrow. Yeah, just a, just a crazy amount of volatility. And really, it's been headlines with um, markets moving in a generally positive d- direction. So this is that classic wall of worry um, that essentially the the saying goes that uh, a bull market is built on a on a wall of worry meaning that generally the people that are optimistic about markets that turn a blind eye to uh, the headline risk and and continue to invest and buy and average into markets during times of, of turmoil are generally rewarded this uh, this first quarter is a classic example of that of course uh, there's a lot of risk that's still out there whether we have you know a hard landing a soft landing other banking crises etc um, but from a portfolio management approach i mean i think this is a just a classic example of why you stay invested in an equity portfolio through thick and thin and why you have other assets and asset classes for relatively short-term needs whether it's cash fixed income uh in the form of bonds etc so uh this is uh, a lot of volatility, a lot to talk about, and uh, in my sense, is just a classic wall of worry type uh, situation. How about you? I, I think that what you said is uh, really poignant in that uh, markets, bull markets climb that wall of worry. Um, there's a couple of just, just sort of anecdotal sayings about that, like that bear markets happen, like you go down on an elevator in bear markets and up on an escalator. Warren Buffett said that people get fearful in mass, and then confidence come ba- comes back one at a time. Um, but that's it's all saying the exact same thing, which is that markets do climb that wall of worry. Bull markets do climb that wall of worry. The yields, I, I think there's there's obviously so much uncertainty at any given point in time, and that's especially present in today's day and, day and age. But I agree with you 100%. I think that. If you just look back at the last quarter, there's been so much stuff, so much crazy things that have happened. It's almost amazing that the markets are, are positive. The yield on bonds has come down as well, too. So just in general, a balanced portfolio has done pretty well this quarter. And 5% on, in a quarter is a lot. I mean, the the markets, the overall balanced market portfolio last year was down like 15%. So things have retraced a little bit, um, and we shall see what happens but this, it, as of right now, it looks like things have started off in a positive note. And but like 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 you said, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty still. 
Now I want to shift gears. There's also, ahead, yeah. There's also a, there's a, also a lot of uh, diversion in returns. Uh, they they call it the industry terminology for this is breath, and essentially what that means is when you have good market breath, not like you know good breath and bad breath, but like B R E A E A D T H. Yeah, um, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> What what uh what that means is you know good breadth is that there's a number of securities that are carrying the market higher. So if you have the S and P 500, that's 500 stocks, and you know there's a large amount of those 500 stocks that are moving in a positive direction. That would be positive breadth. Mm -hmm. uh, negative breadth would be a small number of stocks carrying the market. Um, so, you know, for example, if you have the biggest stocks that are moving higher, but everything else is flat or down, that would be previously conceived as a negative. Historically, that sort of movement is not a positive for forward returns. So like just a handful of, of particular stocks that are carrying the market forward. Um, so this is sort of the bad news as it relates to, you know, why the market's up 5% so far this year. Uh, Meta... Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Google, five companies, um, really the five, five of the biggest companies in the S&P 500 are up about 20% year to date. Mm -hmm. The remaining 495 companies in the S&P 500 are flat, 0% return year to date. So the market is up 5%. And so a skeptic would say, as it relates to this particular market, if Meta, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Google start to roll over uh, and you know, start declining from here, that's a negative uh, outlook for the markets. Uh, I would tend to agree with that from that particular perspective. However, if you look at last year for those particular five companies, Meta uh, 2022 returned down 65%. Uh, Amazon 2022 return, let's see, was down... Uh, 49.6%, so cut in half during 2022. So the, the stocks that were laggards last year are leaders this year. This is sort of a mean reversion uh, framework from my perspective. So I would say a negative component to today's market in the first quarter of this year is that it, just a handful of companies are carrying the whole market. And if those those roll over, then we've, we've got problems. Uh, the optimist in me says that, yeah, well, they sold off way like incredibly last year. So this is them just mean reverting and catching up with, with the market from last year. So right, you can have anyway. the you can make the the argument the other way around that if you have the average um, S and P five hundred company that starts to mean revert back upwards as well too, then that then things could really kick off. So the way if you want to, if you're interested in looking in more detail in the average S and P five hundred company, there's a ticker called RSP. Which is the uh, the equal weighted S and P five hundred index, and exactly what Doug said that that particular equal weighted S and P five hundred is flat to down on the year, even though the actual overall market is up five percent because those big tech companies are, are carrying the market. Although, like Doug said, they they've been they get totally beat up last year. Um, yeah, so RSP tw down tw in twenty twenty two was down eleven point six percent. The market was down nineteen point five. Right, so this it's just the exact reverse of 2022. Right, so uh, wh where did the where did the S P 500 peak in at the beginning of 2022? So what was it like 4600? No, it was like 49. Like it was higher than those 4900. 
So anyway, um, we're, we're, it's, things are still, we're still like 15 ish percent off the high. Um, 4766. 4766. Okay. So yeah, about 15% off the high, 12 to 15%. So it will be interesting to see how things transpire. Um, but again, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. The Fed did raise rates at the rap, most rapid clip in history. Um, there was obviously ramifications associated with that that we saw in the last couple of weeks. And there's probably still going to be things that, that transpire that we have no idea that they're coming. And that's the that's the interesting thing about markets is you try to make decisions based upon the, the all the known risks, but there's also there's all kinds of unknown risks that exist. Um, nobody thought that bank failures were going to be a thing um, in 2023, and here we are um, with the two two of the largest bank failures in the history of the country that happened. And then seemingly the markets have shrugged off, that off um, over the last couple of weeks. And the it's just sort of yeah. it's sort of shifting gears to that that. Um, issue. I read in Bloomberg that the FDIC is, by virtue of guaranteeing the deposits above and beyond the $250,000 threshold at Signature Bank and at Silicon Valley Bank, they are in a basically in, the, in a hole. The whole FDIC has like $123 billion of assets that they use to guarantee the whole, the whole banking system up to their delineated thresholds. But because of those two bank failures, they're going to assess, do a one-time assessment or potentially do a one-time assessment on the biggest banks out there. So, Doug, was this a bailout and what are the ramifications for the banking sector on the whole? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, of course, it's a bailout. But I think the numbers were arbitrary to begin with, like two hundred fifty and 500000 of insurance. So, and that had been the case for decades, and so that not, that needed to be increased, uh, regardless. But the ramifications are that you're not going to get any interest on your deposits at banks anymore, and and so we're already seeing this at the largest banks. Wells Fargo current checking rate checking account rate is 15 basis points. Chase one basis point. Bank of America one basis point. The uh, <laughs> Fed funds rate is almost 5%. And so it, what's your cost of increased FDIC insurance? It's you're not getting any interest on your deposits at, at banks anymore, which I honestly think is like a, a decent trade-off. Okay, keep keep your cash in bank, feel secure, banks feel secure about your, um, whether it's FDIC insurance or if you're a, a company that has above, you can't keep less than, uh, you know, a certain amount because you have payroll and things like that and you feel good about um, having a higher level of insurance, just realize that you're giving up some interest for that. I think that that's a, a reasonable trade-off. Um, and and so increase the level of insurance and just know that you're not getting any interest on your deposit. And I think that that's uh, reasonable from my perspective. Right. And if you have any cash in those institutions above and beyond your normal working capital or bill pay type activity, you should have that in a money market or a short-term treasury that's paying like 4 or 5%. It makes no sense exactly. to keep your money at these institutions that are paying nothing when you can get guaranteed, government guaranteed 4 or 5%. Um, so Yeah, and I think that like, I think it's good that this is being addressed now. Obviously, something had broken in the markets, but there is a lot of risk that's still out there. Specific, so that we had the venture capital blow up. That's really ran, the ramifications there were Silicon Valley Bank, um, Signature Bank, that was crypto related and Silvergate Bank, crypto related. 
the next shoe to drop could be uh, real estate, specifically, you know, commercial real estate and office. So you want to talk a minute about some of the data on that and and just uh, potential um, ramifications in the banking sector related to those particular loans? Yeah. So as it stands right now, no rent is being paid on 20% of the U.S. office space. In certain areas, it's even more accentuated the the uh, percentage of vacancies that exist. Like, for example, in San, San Francisco, it's like 30% um, vacancies on commercial uh, office space. And there's a, a big percentage of those uh, that of uh, office space that people that entities are paying and not using. So it's probably like 50% vacancies if you added up that particular piece. But bottom line is there's been sort of secular shifts, especially in certain markets in the world in the in the US, in where wherein the there's a ton of work work from home, and they had a huge boom in and in, uh, in office space in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. And that particular office space is really expensive, and people and companies are are making the decisions that they don't need to be using that much office space. And so you can see this in specific in a couple of there's a couple of uh, REITs that invest primarily in New York based office space. One is one the one that I'm looking at right now is called Vornado Realty Trust, and uh, it's down over the last five years. Is down. Actually, I'm gonna look at the last one year. Is down 70. percent So, uh, it's really a really sort of uh, trying time in that particular industry. I mean, you could make the. I'm seeing. I'm following all these guys that are making the opposite bet that there might be a return to work in New York, for example. And so, that particular stock is is up a little bit off its floor. It's up like probably 20 or 30 percent in the last week. Um, but again, it's still got a long way to go. That particular stock, Vornado Realty Trust, peaked at like eighty dollars a share in twenty eighteen, and it's now fifteen dollars a share. Um, I I don't know. I mean, it's there's a there's a lot of difficulty for the actual entities themselves. But then you you had brought up a good point about the banks that lent money to those entities. Um, a lot of those the loans that they um, syndicated are probably not. In compliance um, with the, the debt covenants they have on 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 file, um, and so that's there's there's all kinds of ramifications and risks associated with that particular sector. Um, but where there's ri- where there's risks, there's ri- positive and neg- negative risks, and and some people are making the bet that that there these these uh, stocks have sold off um, too much. Yeah. The other the other component to this is that there's um, there's likely opportunity. So. The risk there is that the loans to these uh, particular buildings, let's say it was a, you know, seventy-five percent loan to value when the place was ninety percent occupied, an office building was ninety percent occupied. The value of that building is obviously less now if it's only eighty percent occupied. And so, uh, how much less is it worth? Is the equity underwater? Meaning that twenty-five percent that was in equity and seventy-five percent in debt. Um, that's going to be the, really the ramifications of that I think will play out this year and next. Um, one thing that I think I find interesting is uh, real estate funds that are, are really getting creative with how to convert some of this old antiquated office space to other uses, whether it's um, apartments or multifamily or hotel. Um, there's an article uh, in uh, Planet Zen 
This is from March 29th, 2023. A new study by Spur and the Urban Land Institute's San Francisco chapter estimates a specific number of apartment units that could be built from vacant office units in the city. 11,000 housing units possible with San Francisco office conversions, study says. So the, the good thing about human beings is that we're uh, creative and resourceful and uh, where there's where there is vacancy in office, even in some of these buildings are absolutely gorgeous. Somebody will come in there and see opportunity. And so I think the next leg up is just creating um, housing or hospitality out of these, these old buildings. And I'm sure somebody's going to make a ton of money doing that. Yeah. In times of crisis, that's usually, there's a lot of money made or lost. And so there's going to be, there's, that's going to exist on both sides of that equation. Um, but yeah, that could reverberate through the overall banking sector. The other thing is, is that the interest rates that not only have values come down on those properties, but the interest rates that the the owners, the equity holders of those properties had to, they, they originally got three, five years ago when they bought these properties, the interest rates have gone up dramatically. And so that really makes the sort of ongoing maintenance from an economic standpoint of these buildings and viability of the, the actual equity holders really sort of, uh, a lot of times I'm sure it's going to be un, untenable. So that's sort of the perceived big risk right now. Again, the, the, in the, in the, uh, decade plus or whatever that I've been in this industry, usually the risks that, that come to bite you are the ones that nobody's, um, nobody's perceiving, i.e. COVID, et cetera. So there's always risks that exist. This is one that's in, um, this is one that's on the, in the headlines right now, but there's there's uh, there's just a it's like there's always something and always a plethora of things that are happening at any given point in time, and this is just one of the most um, poignant ones in the headlines. But there's all kinds of other things going on, including things that nobody's thinking of. Yeah, and I think um, just to summarize this this discussion as it relates to banks, I think number one. Uh, FDIC coverage should likely be higher. The, there should be a cost for that. The cost of that is uh, lower interest rates on deposits. Um, the big risk I see in the markets right now is is just in response to all of this. And we talked about we talked about this in the last couple episodes. But in response to all of these banking issues, is that lenders just say, "Look, we're going to take a pause. We're only going to do the least risky deals, and so our lending standards." Are going to rise, and and by in doing so, uh, companies that rely upon, or either even uh, real estate developers that rely upon debt to finance uh, development, um, that could that could completely dry up. And this is an article that was written by Josh Brown uh, on March twenty seventh, uh, titled "A Shock to Lending Standards," and he, and basically, what he's uh, what he's looking at here is the correlation of uh, conservative or liberal lending standards amongst banks and recessionary or expansionary environments. And essentially what this shows is that when land lending standards are tight, uh, there's, there's economic slowdown, there's a rise in, uh, rise in unemployment, there's uh, less investment, less spending. And so the real question mark here is, uh, banks have already become become more tight, just with rising interest rates, with uh, lower valuations on real estate, with and then in the aftermath of Silicon Valley Bank and the other bank failures, how much tighter does it become? 
and the question as to where the economy goes is really uh, in the in the answer to that that particular question. As banks dry, lending dries up. That's really where the the economy is going. That's the argument in this, his particular post, and I would tend to agree with that. I, I think the we talked about this last week. I think the twenty five basis point increase was unnecessary. I think banks are going to do a lot of the work for the Federal Reserve now, uh, just by by virtue of being more conservative. And so, how conservative they get uh, will, will really drive uh, economic growth or contraction. So, I want to get your thoughts on something because I was speaking with one of our clients. And she asked me, so why is the market up this week? And I, there was not, there's not anything specifically I can, and like that we talked about the market being up 5% over the last quarter on the whole. But if you look at the actual, there's not, there hasn't been, and this is the confusing thing about markets, I think, for, for a lot of people that, that are sort of uninitiated. The question is, why are the markets up any, at any given point if there's not any sort of news driving the markets? So I want to get your thoughts on why do you think the markets are up? So, if you look at the last, you know, I'm looking at the the Fed, the Fed data came out on the 20. I don't know, was it like the it was last it was last Wednesday, right? So it's been about a week, and the markets are up since then about three or four percent, including yesterday. The markets were up like one and a half percent, and they followed up so far. They're up today. So, what do you think the actual reason is, or is there a reason why the markets are up um, over over the last week or so? I, I mean, it's impossible to tell. I, the the, I, the th- I have a theory, but the reality is that anything in the short term is just noise, and a week is very noisy. And so it could be down 5% or up 5%, and there's not really anything other than there's more buyers than sellers or more sellers than buyers. Right, and sometimes buying um, can beget more buying, and selling can get, beget more be- selling for no reason. Yeah. So, I mean, the theory, my theory is that there's there's been a major expansion in the Fed's balance sheet, which is more liquidity to the markets. The Fed signaled that it's basically pausing uh, rate hikes. The market's been looking for that for the last 12 months. Um, the equity risk premium has increased, meaning that the the amount of return over bonds has increased just because bond rates have come down, interest rates have come down. Those are sort of like your, your the going theory from a, uh, but it's all. I mean, those are all guesses. Nobody really knows the answer to that. It's uh, you know just noise in the short term, and then it's data in the long term. Right. So I think that all of that makes total sense. And then the other thing is, is that there's just herd mentality at any given point in time, and so people that and entities and institutions that were afraid to buy at lower prices now that prices are higher. They want to participate, and that begets more participation, et cetera. So buying begets more buying. Selling begets more selling. If you look at the actual likelihood any given point in time, or every, any given day, the probability is like 53% of the time or something like that, markets are positive any given day, and 47% of the time they're negative. So it's, just like a, it's almost like a flip of the coin what's going to happen any given point in time. And obviously, those probabilities increase the further out in time you get. So over the course of a year, if you have an, a year to invest in the markets, your historical probability has been like 70% chance that you will have positive returns. So trying to trying to guess what's going to happen in the short term, it, nobody knows what's going on. A lot of the times, there's not any specific news or trigger um, for positive or negative news other than there, there may be just some sort of more buying going on and people want to jo- jump on the, the bandwagon and vice versa on the 
downside. The other thing too is that markets could just be quarter end positioning by some of these major uh, pension funds, endowments, things like that. It's like anything could be happening in the last. You're in the last week of the quarter. You're doing. You're you're about to report to your investors as as to what your positioning is going into next quarter, and you're rebalancing towards some sort of target or whatever it is. It's like that. That could be the 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 like very basic. All these major funds have just repositioned just to be able to show their investors this is how they're allocated. After a five percent plus quarter, I want to own more stocks. So, um, so yeah, anyway. you're right. And, and the interesting thing too is that you have like there's like sh- sort of charlatans that exist that are trying to pump the market one way or another, or just try to build their own brand recognition for whatever reason. People on Twitter, people on whatever social media, I saw recently. So about I think it was about six or eight weeks ago, Michael Burry, who's famous for uh, calling the subprime mortgage crisis, and he made several hundred million dollars on that trade by betting against the um, by betting against subprime loans and buying these options that paid out if if there was a default in that particular sector. So he has this these sort of brand and notoriety for being right and. People give him a lot of attention as a, as a result of that. Six or eight weeks ago, he posted like very cryptically on his Twitter account, "sell," just like one word. Um, so his his prognostication was is that everything was going to hell in a handbasket. And did you see what he posted on Twitter this morning, Doug? What was it? He said, "I was wrong to say sell." So yeah. So maybe now is the time to sell. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't know, but the whole the whole idea is that you have. Nobody, nobody knows nothing, as in John Bogle, what he said, and um, and the, try, the trying to predict what's going to happen in the short term is really a fool's errand. Well, Charlie, Charlie, our compliance guy, said you guys have to stop saying nobody knows anything on podcasts because you say it every week. But it's it's the absolute truth. Like right. we're, we're here just BSing every week for thirty minutes, but. Um, in reality, it's like a total flip of the coin week by week, what's going to happen in the markets. And we make our best guess and we position accordingly, but, um, it's all noise in the short term. Right. So the bank failures that happened or whatever, like two weeks ago, um, who would have thought that the markets are up 6% since yeah. then? So it's just, there's a tremendous amount of noise going on at any given point in time and trying to tie your sanity to the, the, Noise and vicissitudes of the market on the short term, short term is really a uh, a difficult thing because a lot of times news that ter- that appears superficially to be negative and that you, any reasonable person would interpret to be a bad sign as an equity holder is can be a positive. Um, it's crazy. Um, negative earnings, for example, can be like if you sometimes corporations come out and their earnings they miss on their earnings, etc. And any reasonable person would be like, okay, well, that the stock would go down, but for some reason the stock goes up. Um, there's no, there, the really the the I'll fin- we'll finish with one one famous quote um, that um, we've probably said multiple times over the course of this uh, of this podcast, and you probably hear this and read this elsewhere. But over the short term, this is from Ben Graham. Over the short term, markets are a voting machine, and over the long term, they're a weighing machine, meaning that. What you're seeing any given point in time is just people's overall psychology. The markets are the this best the best representation 
of human psychology at any given point in time because people have their money on the line and you can see, see real time how if people are fearful or they're greedy. But over a long period of time, if corporate earnings increase, which they have done historically, then you should benefit as a shareholder. So with that, we'll close. Doug, do you have anything else to add? Nope. I think we're good. Great, great quarter, guys. That's it. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars. Uh, we enjoy having you as listeners, and we're going to come back next week, um, close out the uh, week before Easter, Passover, and uh, we'll see you that see you guys then. If you enjoy this podcast, give us five stars and share it with your friends and family. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.